0: Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 14 of The Fall of Constantinople and the title of this episode is The Conclusion. So, with the fall of Constantinople on the 29th of May 1453, after a 53-day siege, as told in the last episode, we have at last reached the end of of Byzantium. And it was also the effective end of the Crusades, with Pope Pius II calling for the last crusade in fourteen fifty nine to fight the Ottoman Turks and to avenge the fall of Constantinople, which of course never materialized. It's also often said to be the end of the Middle Ages. Yet to be honest, fourteen fifty three wasn't really a turning point in itself. In truth Byzantium was long dead. In my opinion, it died on the battlefield of Manzikert in 1071, and it was only a shadow of its former self thereafter. The crusaders were also long gone, and Islam was now dominated by the Ottoman Turks. So what was the true significance of 1453? Well, I think it did mark the passing of the Middle Ages, because it confirmed that all those key features of the Middle Ages were dead, like Byzantium and the Crusaders. It also marked the arrival of the Ottoman Turks as a world power. And of course, they would last as a great empire until the First World War. And then the very final important thing about it is that it was nearly 40 years before an event that was truly momentous, which was, of course, Christopher Columbus's discovery of America in 1492. So I think it's true that 1453 marks the passing of the Middle Ages and the beginning of a new age. And in a minute, I will read Sir Stephen Runciman's summing up of the Crusades and their place in history. And don't expect any kind words, I'm afraid, since Runciman was not sympathetic to the confused aims and deeds of the Crusaders. But before we get to that, let me say with great regret that it's also the end of this podcast, and I'd like to say thank you so much for listening. It's been a joy producing it, and from having myself been about the only listener in the first episodes nearly two years ago, it's been thrilling to see that now there are nearly quarter of a million downloads and thousands listening to it each week. So a very, very big thank you to you for showing such interest in it. And then I'm really delighted and excited to say that it's not the end at all because I've got another podcast which I've just launched and the first two episodes are there waiting for you on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast app you like using. And why I think you might like it is that it's on a subject which is very closely related to Byzantium and the Crusades, which is the fall of the Roman Empire. So just tap in the fall of the Roman Empire in your podcast app searcher, and you'll find it under my name, Nick Holmes. And you'll find it's in a very similar format to this podcast. And the subject matter is really very closely related to Byzantium and the Crusades, because it covers not just the fall of the Western Roman Empire, but also the establishment of the Byzantine Empire, the foundation of Christianity as the Roman religion, and also the birth and rise of Islam. So all the key ingredients of the Crusades, and it's It's really a much, much bigger subject than the crusade. And to give you a flavour of what it's about, I'll play you a short extract right now. What's so good about the story of Rome's fall is that it is one of the greatest stories in history. It's also one of the most important, in my view, because the legacy of the Roman Empire is still with us today in so many ways. For example, European languages use the Roman alphabet. Christianity was a Roman religion. Indeed, it became their state religion, very closely linked with the authority of the emperor. And a lot of the ideas we have today about government, politics, the army, as well as philosophy, art, drama, and literature come from the Romans, and as well as, of course, from the Greeks, since the Romans were great admirers of Greek civilization and adopted so much of it. So, in the immortal words of the Monty Python team, the question, what did the Romans ever do for us, must have the answer really quite a lot. And then another really big question is, why did Rome fall? And this is just such a fascinating area, because there are so many questions and issues to do with this, which we'll be looking at in this podcast. Like, not just why did the Roman army lose its cutting edge, But was the Roman Empire also badly hit by pandemics and climate change? And there's growing evidence to suggest the answer is yes to both of these. So I really hope you'll tune in to the first couple of episodes of The Fall of the Roman Empire. And now we'll turn back for the very last time to Byzantium and the Crusades, and we'll look at a summing up of the Crusades. And I'll read as before from my adaptive version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. The Crusades were originally launched to save Byzantium from the Muslims. When they ended, the whole of Byzantium was under Muslim rule. In 1095, when Pope Urban preached his great sermon at Clermont, the Turks seemed about to threaten the Bosphorus and Constantinople. Nearly 400 years later, in 1459, when Pope Pius II preached the last Crusade, the Ottoman Turks were crossing the Danube. Of the last fruits of the Crusading movement, Rhodes fell to the Turks in 1523 and Cyprus, ruined by its wars with Egypt and Genoa, and next at last by Venice, passed to the Turks in 1570. All that was left of the legacy of the Crusaders was a handful of Greek islands that Venice continued precariously to hold. The Turkish advance was checked, Not by any crusade or by any concerted effort of Christendom, but by the actions of the states most nearly concerned, those being Venice and the Habsburg Empire, with France, the old champion of the Crusades, treacherously supporting the Turks.' The Ottoman Empire itself began to decline through its own failure to maintain an efficient government for its great possessions until it could no longer oppose the ambition of its neighbours nor crush the nationalist spirit of its Greek and Christian subjects, preserved by those churches whose independence the Crusaders had tried so hard to destroy. So, seen in the perspective of history, the whole crusading movement was a vast fiasco. The almost miraculous success of the First Crusade set up Frankish states in Outremer and a century later, when all seemed lost, the gallant effort of the Third Crusade and Richard the Lionheart preserved them for another Hundred years. But the tenuous kingdom of Jerusalem and its sister principalities were a puny outcome from so much energy and enthusiasm. For three centuries there was hardly a ruler in Europe who did not at some time vow with fervour to go on the holy war. There was not a country that failed to send soldiers to fight for Christendom in the east. Jerusalem was in the mind of every man and woman. Yet the efforts to hold or to recapture the Holy City met with complete failure, nor did these efforts have the effect on the general history of Western Europe that might have been expected from them. The era of the Crusades is certainly one of the most important in the history of Western civilization. When it began, Western Europe was only just emerging from the long period of barbarian invasions that we call the Dark Ages, when it ended, the great burgeoning that we call the Renaissance had just begun. But we cannot assign any direct part in this positive development to the Crusaders themselves. The Crusades had nothing to do with the new security in the West, which enabled merchants and scholars to travel as they pleased. There was already access to the stored-up learning of the Muslim world through Spain. Students such as Gerbert of Aurillac had already visited the Spanish centres of education. Throughout the Crusading period, Itself, It was Sicily rather than the lands of Outremer that provided a meeting place for Arab, Greek and Western culture. Intellectually, Outremer added next to nothing. It was possible for a man of the calibre of Saint Louis to spend several years there without the slightest effect on his cultural outlook. If the German Emperor Frederick II took an interest in Arab civilization, that was due to his upbringing in Sicily, nor did Outremer contribute to the progress of Western art, except in the realm of military architecture and perhaps in the introduction of the pointed arch. In the art of warfare, apart from castle building, the West showed again and again that it had learned nothing from the Crusades. The same mistakes were made by every expedition from the First Crusade to the Crusades, Crusade of Nicopolis. The circumstances of warfare in the East differed so greatly from those in Western Europe that it was only the knights resident in Outremer who troubled to remember past experience. It is possible that the general standard of living in the West was raised by the desire of returning soldiers and pilgrims to copy the comforts of Outremer in their homelands. But the commerce between East and West, though it was increased by the Crusade, did not depend on them for its existence. And it was only in some aspects of the political development of Western Europe that the Crusades left a mark. One of Pope Urban's expressed aims in preaching the Crusades was to find some useful work for the turbulent and belligerent barons who otherwise spent their energy on civil wars at home, and the removal of large sections of that unruly element to the East undoubtedly helped the rise of monarchical power in the West, to the ultimate detriment, however, of the papacy. But meanwhile, the papacy itself Benefited. The Pope had launched the Crusade as an international Christian movement under his leadership. Congregations in every part of the Christian world acknowledged the Pope's spiritual supremacy. The Pope's missionaries travelled as far afield as Ethiopia and China. The whole movement stimulated the organisation of the Papal Chancery on a far more international basis than before, and it played a great part in the development of canon law. Indeed, had the Popes been content to reap ecclesiastical benefits alone, they would have had good cause for self-congratulation. But the times were not yet ready for a clear division between ecclesiastical and lay politics. And in lay politics, the papacy overreached itself. The crusade commanded respect Only when it was directed against the infidel, the fourth crusade, directed if not preached against the Christians of the East, the Byzantines, was followed by a crusade against the heretics of southern France, the Albigensians, and the nobles that showed them sympathy. And this was succeeded by crusades preached against the German Hohenstaufen, until at last the crusade came to mean any war against the enemies of the Pope. The triumph of the popes in ruining both the German emperors in the West and the Byzantine emperor in the East led them on to the humiliations of the Sicilian War and ultimately the papal captivity by the French at Avignon. Therefore, the Crusades ended up becoming a tragic farce. If the Crusades had a harmful effect on Christianity, they also had a harmful effect on Islam. Any religion like Islam that is based on an exclusive revelation is bound to show some contempt for the unbeliever. But Islam was not intolerant in its early days. The Prophet Muhammad himself considered that Jews and Christians had received a partial revelation and were therefore not to be persecuted. Under the early caliphs, the Christians played an honourable part in Arab society. A remarkably large number of the early Arabic thinkers and writers were in indeed Christians, who provided a useful intellectual stimulus for the Muslims with their reliance on the word of God, given once and for all time in the Quran, tended to remain static and unenterprising in their thought. Nor was the rivalry of the caliphate with the Christian Byzantium entirely unfriendly. Scholars and technicians passed to and fro between the two empires to their mutual benefit. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. The Crusades begun by the Franks ruined these good relations. The savage intolerance shown by the Crusaders was answered by growing intolerance from the Muslims. The appealing humanity of Saladin and his family proved all too rare in the Muslim world. By the time of the Mamluks, the Muslims were as narrowly focused on hatred as the Franks. Their Christian subjects were among the first to suffer from it. They never recovered their old easy acquaintanceship with their Muslims neighbours and masters, their own intellectual life faded away, and with it the widening influence that it had upon Islam. But the harm done by the Crusades to Islam was small in comparison with that done to Byzantium and the Eastern Christians. Pope Urban II had bidden the Crusaders go forth that they might rescue Byzantium. It was a strange rescue, for when the work was over, Byzantium lay under infidel domination, and the Crusaders themselves had done all that they could to prevent Byzantium's recovery. When the Crusaders set themselves up in the East, they treated their Christian subjects no better than the Islamic Caliph had done before them. Indeed, they were sterner, for they interfered in the religious practices of the local churches. When they were ejected by the Muslims, they left the local Christians unprotected to bear the wrath Of their Muslim conquerors. It is true that the native Christians themselves earned a fuller measure of this Islamic wrath by their desperate belief that the Mongols would give them the lasting freedom that they had not obtained from the Franks. Their penalty was severe and complete, weighed down by cruel restrictions and humiliations. They dwindled into unimportance. Even their land was punished. The lovely Syrian coastline was ravaged and left desolate. The holy city of Jerusalem itself sank neglected into a long, untranquil decline. As for the Crusaders themselves, they found their failures inexplicable. They were fighting, so they thought, for the cause of the Almighty, and if faith and logic were correct, that cause should have triumphed. In the first flush of success of the First Crusade, they entitled their chronicles the Gesta Dei per Francos god 's work done by the hand of the Franks, but after the first Crusade, there followed a long train of disasters, and even the victories of the Third Crusade were incomplete and unsure. There were evil forces they thought which thwarted god's work at first, the blame could be laid on Byzantium on the schismatic Byzantine Emperor and his un- ungodly people who refused to recognize the divine mission of the Crusaders. But after the fourth Crusade, that excuse could no longer be maintained. And yet, things went steadily worse for the Crusaders. Moralist preachers might claim that God was angry with his warriors because of their sins. But as an explanation, this too collapsed when Saint Louis, the King of France, led his army into one of the greatest disasters that the Crusaders had ever known. For Saint Louis was a man whom the medieval world believed to be without sin. In fact, it was not so much wickedness as stupidity, that ruined the Crusades. Yet such is human nature that a man will admit far more readily to being a sinner than a fool. No one amongst the Crusaders would admit that their real crimes were a willful and narrow ignorance and an irresponsible lack of forethought. The chief motive that impelled the Christian armies eastward was faith, but the sincerity and simplicity of their faith led them into pitfalls. It carried them through incredible hardships to victory on the First Crusade, whose success seemed miraculous. The Crusaders therefore expected that miracles would continue to save them. When difficulties arose, their confidence made them foolhardy, and even to the end, such as at Nicopolis, And as at Antioch, they were certain that they would receive divine support. Again, their faith, by its very simplicity, made them intolerant. Their God was a jealous God. They could never conceive it possible that the God of Islam might have the same power. The colonists settled in Outremer might reach a wider view, but the soldiers from the West came to fight for the Christian God, and to them, anyone who showed tolerance to the Muslims was a traitor. Even those that worshipped the Christian God in a different ritual were suspect and deplored. This genuine faith was often combined with unashamed greed. Few Christians have ever thought it incongruous to combine God's work with the acquisition of material advantages. They believed that it was right that the soldiers of God should extract territory and wealth from the Muslims. It was justifiable to rob the heretic and the schismatic also. Worldly ambitions helped to produce the gallant adventurousness on which much of the early success of the Crusades was based. But greed and the lust for power are dangerous masters. They breed impatience, for man's life is short and he needs quick results. They breed jealousy and disloyalty, for offices and possessions are limited and it is impossible to satisfy every claimant. There was a constant feud between the Franks already established in the East and those that came out to fight the Muslims and to seek their fortune. Each saw the war from a different point of view. In the turmoil of envy, distrust and intrigue, few campaigns had much chance of success. Quarrels and inefficiency were enhanced by ignorance. The colonists slowly adapted themselves to the ways and the climate of the Levant. They began to learn how their enemies fought and how to make friends with them. But the newly come crusader found himself in an utterly unfamiliar world, and he was usually too too proud to admit his limitations. He disliked his cousins of Outremer and would not listen to them. So expedition after expedition made the same mistakes and reached the same sorry end. Powerful and intelligent leadership might have saved the Crusaders, but the feudal background from which they were drawn, made it difficult for a leader to be accepted. The Crusades were the Pope's work, but papal legates were seldom good generals. Perhaps surprisingly, there were in fact many able men amongst the kings of Jerusalem, but they had little authority over their own subjects and none over their visiting allies. The military orders who provided the finest and most experienced soldiers were independent and jealous of each other National armies, led by a king, seemed at one time to offer a better weapon. But though King Richard the Lionheart of England, who was a soldier of genius, was one of the few successful commanders amongst the Crusaders, the other royal expeditions were, without exception, disastrous. It was difficult for any monarch to go campaigning for long in lands so far away from his own. Richard the Lionheart's and St Louis's stays in the east were made at the expense of the welfare of England and France. France. the financial cost in particular was appallingly high the italian cities could make the crusades a profitable business and independent nobles who hoped to found estates or to marry heiresses in Outremer, might find their investment returned. But to send the royal army overseas was a costly undertaking with very little hope of material compensation. Special taxes had to be raised throughout the kingdom. It was not surprising that practical-minded kings, such as Philip IV of France, preferred to raise the taxes for a crusade and then to stay at home. In summary, the story of the Crusades is a tragic tale. Seldom in history has there been so much courage and yet so little honour, so much devotion and yet so little understanding. And that ends this final episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed it. But it's not goodbye, because I hope you'll now tune into my new podcast called The Fall of the Roman Empire. So I will end by saying hope to see you next time.